I'm going to talk about, uh, from the passage, we'll be looking at 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 11. Let me read that to you, and then let us talk about forgiveness and God's church. Let me begin. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you. To some extent, not to put it too severely, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us. For we are not unaware of his schemes. Is there any sin you can commit that God will not forgive? Before you jump to that, I read an article that uh, Philip Yancey wrote. He said he was in a lively Bible study after Jeffrey Dahmer was beat to death by a broomstick in the prison he was serving. Jeffrey Dahmer around the Minnesota, uh, Milwaukee area, he uh, had killed 17 young men. He cannibalized many of them. When they finally went to his apartment, he had decapitated or cut up the parts of 11 young men and was keeping them in refrigeration. Uh, it was one of the most dastardly, outrageous kinds of crime and activity that could ever go on. Yancey found himself in a Bible study, and the question came up all over the country, and it came up in their Bible study, uh, could God forgive such a man? Because what was interesting is two weeks before he was beat to death, he had professed faith, a Church of Christ chaplain uh, had led him to Christ. He had been baptized while in prison. Uh, it might have been even more than a few weeks, was attending all the chapels, was studying the Bible, was making all these uh, radical changes in his life. And the question came up in the Bible study. They asked Muslims, Jews, they asked Christians, and it came up in the Bible study Philip was in. Could God possibly forgive a man of 17 horrendous crimes? Would that really be possible? And then I think the question may be, let's do this. Is there any sins God would forgive that you wouldn't forgive? There's 11 things about forgiveness, I'll just cite them, that are wonderful. You see, I, I read in this article about uh, a couple that got into a fight. The book was called Love in the Time of Cholera. And uh, this man told his wife, it's your job to keep soap on hand. The disease is going everywhere. He comes up. 
They get in an argument that the soap wasn't there. He told her, I've gone a week without soap. She said, no, I put it there. They defended it. So let me, so I don't make up anything. So the man said, I've been going without this for all this time. So for seven months, uh, they slept in separate rooms and ate in silence. Even when they were old and placid, writes Marquez, they were careful about bringing it up because it would always break out into an argument. The book, The Knot of Vipers by Francis Marriott, tells of a story of an old man who spent the last decades of his marriage sleeping down the hall from his wife. The rift opened 30 years before whether the husband had shown enough concern for a daughter when she was sick. The wife said, you didn't, so they didn't talk to each other for 30 years. In her memoir of a truly dysfunctional family, The Liars Club, that's the book, by Mary Carr, tells of a Texas couple that uh, must have been a depressing couple because he uh, got angry at her that she's spending too much money on sugar. So they got in a battle, and they remained married, but did not speak to each other for 40 years. Uh, one day, hear this. This is Philip Yancey. One day he took out a lumber saw and sawed their house exactly in half. He nailed up planks to cover the raw sides and moved one of the halves behind some scruffy pine trees on the same acre of ground. There the two, husband and wife, lived out the rest of their days in separate half houses. Not outhouses, half houses. Families are torn apart because they won't forgive. Marriages are winding up in divorce courts because they won't forgive. Churches are splitting because people won't forgive. You have to ask yourself this question. Is this a safe church to fail? If a girl came in here and said, I, I've got pregnant and I'm not married, would this be a safe place? Now, we've got two great problems in our culture. One, tolerance. Nothing's wrong. If I want to do it, honey, it's none of your business. So we got that attitude in the culture, for sure. It's none of your business. Just keep the money coming, parents. But it's none of your business what I do. And then on the other hand, uh, you've got people that are so harsh, you don't know if you would ever be forgiven of anything. Because they keep accurate records on every infraction. And it says in 1 Corinthians, love keeps no ledger of wrong suffered. And they're always up to date. You did this last year. You did this last week. They, you know it, it will never be over. It will never be over. Well, uh, there's 11 things about forgiveness. And I'm just citing these. And then I'm going to give you the three things I like to emphasize from the passage uh, it is always God-like to forgive. God is painted as a forgiving God over and over. How else could he have a relationship with sinners like us? He's a forgiving God. 
Two, God told us not to murder in the sixth commandment, and Jesus upped it in the Sermon on the Mount by saying, murder now equals hate. Whoever you hate, I'm giving you credit for murder. So to obey me, you can't hate. Sin against people is a sin against God. When you mistreat people, you're mistreating God. You remember when David confesses sin of sleeping with Bathsheba. Now, he didn't just sleep with a woman. He killed her husband. He stole her, and he hid it for a year. And finally, when he came clean, he said, before you and you only did I do this sin. Well, it's not only God you sinned. You're saying right now, only you saw it. But Uriah's dead, and you killed him, David. Uriah has lost his wife. Bathsheba lost the baby. I'm telling you, you may say it's just against God, but you never sin alone. And there's an old saying that used to say, Sin will take you further than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will make you pay more than you want to pay. When you want to sin, it, 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 it's like breaching the dam. The water's out, and you can't pick all the consequences. You can pick your sin, but you can't govern all the consequences. Well, uh, the forgiven, which is us, must forgive. Uh, we've been forgiven much. Jesus gave the parable of a man forgiven a debt of 10,000 talents. A talent, one talent of metal was worth 20 years of wages. So take 20 times 10,000, get 200,000. It would take 200,000 years of working off this debt before you could pay me. Impossible. There is no end to forgiveness. Peter said, if I forgive a guy seven times in a day, I pay my dues. Jesus said, just multiply it by 70. 490 times a day. Start there, Peter. He said, I need more faith. Jesus said, no, you don't need more faith. You need to just obey. Quit making the limits that you say you'll forgive. If God did that, he wouldn't save us. Well, uh, refusal to forgive forfeits fellowship with God. You can't hate your brother and have fellowship with God, right? Failing to uh, forgive leads to divine discipline. God will discipline you with an unforgiving spirit. I think uh, failing to forgive cuts you off from worship. He said in Matthew 5, if you go to worship and there you've got ought against your brother, Forgive being in the song service. Forget about being in during the sermon. Go to your brother. Be reconciled first. Then you come back to worship. And God wants your worship. But he said, I won't accept it until you make the effort to be reconciled. That's the priority God's put on it. Um, and let's go to the text. Let me give you the context of what's going on here. Paul has made a painful visit to this church. He says this in chapter 2 and verse 1. He, um, he'd had a, a, a man that rose up in the church, and it sounds as though he publicly uh, castigated Paul, 
rejected his apostolic authority, made a scene. And the whole church heard this outrage and just running Paul down, all like that. And, uh, and it killed Paul. It hurt him. It crushed him. It made him feel terrible. Paul makes a painful visit from Ephesus, goes across the sea to Corinth, not recorded in uh, the book of Acts. Luke doesn't record it. But he says, I made a painful visit to you. He wrote a painful letter. And at first when this guy did this, the church was silent. They did nothing. They just let him run down Paul. And it's not the incestuous brother of chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. That was one case. This is a different case. And so he said, they outraged me. And they just rose up. And I think the first thing we ought to consider is the pain that sin causes. That here the whole church is put into pain, into sorrow, uh, over the sinning of this brother, castigating Paul, no telling what he called him. May have said, you're not a true apostle. We don't know exactly what he did, but there's this outrageous behavior that crushed Paul, that the church at first was silent, and they were doing nothing about it. And then Paul says, I just want you to know, this guy has caused the whole church pain. There are things that happen in churches that you may not have done that causes pain in that church. Corporate pain. And I think a lot of people don't want to be identified with it. I remember Warren Wiersbe said one time, one of these TV preachers had fallen into moral behavior, wrong problems, and all like that. And everybody of the different stripes of the Christian community began to point the finger, and he did this, and he did that, and pointed out all the faults. And Warren Wiersbe made this comment. It did not happen to him. It happened to us. You can't sin alone. We were pointing the finger. That preacher shouldn't have done that. He shouldn't have done that. He said, we're still in the body of Christ together when a brother or sister misbehaves. We bear it. It's like being in the same family and a member of your family does some outrageous act. Guess what? You're still a Howard. You're still whatever you are. You don't undo being a part of that family just because you don't approve of the behavior in the family. And so here Paul is saying, hey, this guy put us all into pain. I've been painting. The church has been painting. The severe letter has arrived to you guys, and I've cleaned house. I, I spoke up to the majority. Where were you? Why didn't you speak up? Why didn't you call this guy to task? Why, why didn't you do anything? Pain. And I just want to say to you, just don't be alive if you don't want relational pain. You're going to have it if you have children, if you have marriage, if you work on a job. If you ever have human contact, eventually you're going to have a rub. And if you don't have that, just look in the mirror. and You'll get, to stay, get where you can't stand that. We are the problem. We carry the problem. We carry all kinds of hang-ups about people and, well, oh, we know what everybody ought to do, and, oh, man, we're experts at judging. But he said, this guy's caused severe pain 
to me and to you. And then he goes on, he says, but he's got to pay for it. There's a penalty for this kind of behavior. And obviously, the church stood up finally, and they opposed this guy and, and withstood him. And look what he says in verse 5 or verse 6. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. And then they, they, they finally rallied. They did something. Uh, we don't know what they did. They may have disciplined him out of the church. They may have had a, a, a corporate meeting and says, you're wrong about Paul. You shouldn't have talked that. Whatever the w nature of it was, he finally, enough penalty, enough discipline had been meted out that Paul was saying, stop. That's enough. That's enough. I think of uh, what we go through in raising children. I think more liars are produced every day by people having children. <laughs> if you do that, I'll spank you. They did it. What did you do? Well, I, I loved them. I said, Mommy loves you. You just lied. You just lied. Uh, don't touch. Don't touch. They touch. They're crying. What do you do? Do you bandage them or spank them? Well, first of all, it'd be nice if you'd bandage them. That'd be nice. What do you do? How much do you tolerate? When do you inflict any pain? See, the Bible's got a bad name about talking about the rod. You know, that seems you're barbaric. You mean you would spank a child? Well, I'll ask you this. Would God? I can't hear you out there. Would God? Is it loving? Is it abuse? No, God doesn't abuse. Do you spank children because you're mad? Has never said the reason. You want to say, after I've used my mouth to instruct you, I want to bring just enough pain, not abuse, to ingrain this lesson that you don't touch something that dad or mom says don't touch because I'm trying to preserve you from pain. I'm trying to save you pain, so I want to inflict enough pain, and I'm not going to inflict it on your ears. Man, that hurt. Uh, hit you on the head, call you stupid, dummy, none of that. God has graciously built your anatomy for a spanking. You might beat some of it off. Your bottom was made to take the pain without shaming and without injury, and uh, that's why you want them potty trained is so they can feel it. See, because sinners, that we all were born with a bent to do our own way, pain is a great teacher. It's the hardest teacher, but it's a great one. And he said, he, he said in Proverbs, the fool doesn't learn from pain. He gets worse and worse. You can't beat folly out of a fool. He insists on being a fool. And he said he becomes the grief to his mother and his father. An unteachable child that is not correctable is headed for penitentiary. It's a danger to society. 
And so he's saying, you guys have inflicted enough pain. It's sufficient. The majority finally stepped up and dealt with it. And so he's commending them. And then he said, this is what he tells them. And he's been offended the most. It was personal. And he's telling the church, please forgive. I, I, I'm in this with you. This is what we ought to do. Once you've disciplined him, once he's repented, once he wants to come back, listen to the kind, kind uh, heart of the pastor of Paul. He said, hey, the punishment's sufficient. Now you ought to what? Forgive. Wow. Beautiful. Forgive him. He's repented. But he hadn't said this until he repented. Comfort him. Come alongside of him and say, you're going to make it. We're going to lift you up. And then why do you do this? You don't want him to be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow, the shame and maybe the embarrassment. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote was to see if you would stand the test of obedience in everything. I was, I was writing you, will you do what I tell you? Will you carry out my, I said forgive. I said reaffirm. It's quite interesting. I've seen in the church what's easy to do with the, uh, the sinning brother, the forgiven one, whoever it is, is you can keep them on probation from now on. Uh, you know, you hear this comment, I'll never trust you again. I'll never, you hear that, that's like a, a virtuous statement. You know what? Maybe you don't have a forgiving heart. Because there's all kinds of lies. Well, if I forgive them, they'll be bold enough to do it again. If I forgive them, they won't think I'm taking their sin serious. If I forgive them, they're going to just use me. If I got all these excuses, why not to do it? Let's use that on God and you. Have you ever done the same sin two days in a row? <laughs> the same sin. Yesterday, Lord, I said, I'm sorry and ask you for forgiveness. Okay, just never do it again. Have you ever heard him say that? Now, he did tell some guys, go and sin no more. Okay, break with it. So the next day, you do it. God said, no, if I forgive you, you'll just do it again. You don't take my forgiveness for real. No, I'm not going to forgive you. Well, why do we do this with people? Why is all your forgiveness always so conditional? Conditional, conditional. And yet I come to God, I forgive you for Christ's sake. Because the final thing, I make three Ps out of this. The pain caused by sin, the penalty do it, and then the payment for it. Why is God free to forgive me? Because he skirts over it. He, he's a, uh, a, a dishonest parent. He doesn't carry through. No, the cross. The cross set Christ free to forgive you. There had to be a huge payment. And according to Romans 3, the cross satisfied the righteous wrath of God against your sin. So forgiveness is the overflow of what Christ did when he paid for our sin. Now, we as believers ought to be operating. I am a forgiven sinner. I'm only passing on what I've received. 
Ephesians 4.31, forgive each other as your Father has forgiven you in Christ Jesus. I'm not doing anything the Father hasn't done. I'm not doing anything the Son wouldn't do because our God is a forgiving God, and he, and he doesn't accuse us of playing him. Look at the story of the prodigal son. Hey, the dad never went to the far country. The dad never said, uh, I've got a condition. Don't you ever come back? If you ever pull that again, you're out of here. He just says, if you come back, I'll throw a party. Come back. I want to put it behind us. Some of you have never forgiven, and you're a wreck, and you deserve to be. Because the one you set free the most from forgiveness is yourself. You. I released it. I, I let it go. You know, uh, Leviticus, they had the story of the scapegoat. They confessed the sin, and they would send it out into the wilderness. And it was a Hebrew word to get so far out, get so lost, that that goat could never find its way back to camp. Now, God says, I've taken every bit of sin you've ever done, and I've heaped it on my son. And if Jeffrey Dahmer had really, truly believed, only he and God knows that, could God let him go to heaven and not violate his justice? What about the murdering thief on the cross with Jesus? And all he said is, I'd like to be with you in your kingdom when you get there. He said, you got it made. You believed in me. I'll forgive the murder, and I'll see you there. Do you have that kind of gospel, or are you just the opposite of the gospel we preach? Don't cross me, because I'm never going to let you forget it, and I'm going to shame you, and I'm going to remind you, because you're messing with someone greater than God. God can forgive, but I won't. You're in a desperate state of mind. You need to be forgiven. You need a change of attitude. Let me tell you what happens when people repent and when people get forgiveness. He said, I forgive because I don't want Satan to get an advantage. I tell this story in 1975, uh, as I recollect. Uh, I was invited to a out-in-the-woods church by a guy. They didn't have the money to uh, buy me a ticket to get there. They had no money to give me when I got there. Uh, when I was taken back to the place, there were elk trails and deer trails. We were going back. I knew I was going to see Daniel Boone or Davy Crockett. <laughs> I mean, this thing just kept going back, going back. And so all of a sudden, I'm in this place, didn't even have a gas station. I mean, it was just a uh, like a village, if there was that much, back, back in Oregon. And uh, when I'm coming there, uh, the pastor had sons, and they were talking. And, and we pull up uh, to the church parsonage, and, and the guy says, uh, don't mind the holes in the uh, parsonage. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I just had a man shoot up the place. Said, wait, 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 wait. I'm from Richmond. When you say shoot up, honey, I, I, I ain't thinking of elk season. 
He said, yeah. I said, what happened? He said, well, we had to deal with the girl sleeping around in sin, wouldn't repent. And so we had to uh, put her out of the youth group. And her father, who happened to be a logger, came out here and shot up the parsonage. The wife and three boys in it. I said, you, you kid. I said, you want me for a Bible conference? Good night. I, I'm not going to Vietnam. And he goes on. Oh, he said, by that, by the way, he said, last month, uh, one of these dogwood guys beat up me and one of my deacons. I said, what am I doing here? I'm from the Bay Area. I'm not claiming to be a Norgonian logger. I'm going to go with the safety. And he said, yeah. I said, well, what happened? He said, I was teaching a Sunday school class Sunday morning. And this irate, another irate father about one of the girls in the youth group, something, he came in, and this deacon was a man in the lobby, had to, this guy wades in on him, starts beating him up. The pastor, who's 6'5", uh, 280, uh, said, went out there to rescue this guy, and, and this angry logger guy ripped out, he showed me, he said he took on his co coat jacket, he ripped out the arms from the shoulders down on both of them, had the man pinned, and the pastor had to knock him off. He needed the bodyguards I got. <laughs> and so this church was having all these, I mean, severe things. I preached there Friday, Saturday, uh, Sunday night, we're wrapping up, and I had some... Uh, uh, students that I had had in college, they were going to seminary in Portland. They come over to be in the meeting. And so we were going to get together afterwards. But when I tried to end that meeting that night, it was like the Spirit of God lay like heavy, heavy across that meeting. Uh, it was so heavy, I didn't know what to do. I literally told the people as bow our heads, I don't know how to close this meeting. There might have been 70 at the most, maybe 80 people, if that many. So I finally said, you know what, folks? I said, uh, I feel God is saying he wants this church to repent. And you need to get right with this pastor. I don't know what's going on. I've heard some horrendous stories. I don't know what's going on in your hearts. I don't know. But it seemed like the Spirit of God will not let me go. You need, I said, Pastor, I, I want you to come right here. Ron, you go stand there. And anybody that's got ought, anybody that's uh, at odds with this church, whatever, you, you need to come because I think you're at the crossing points. He's either got to leave and let you destroy yourself or you got to repent and start all over. I tell you, we just waited, just waited. Pretty soon, people started forming in an aisle like this. After an hour, I gave up. I said, I'm going over to the parsonage. I invited these young men. Come on, let's we'll have a cup of coffee. They had to be back in Portland to go to school. I said, come on, we'll, we'll get together. They kept coming for two to three hours, weeping, confessing, repenting, weeping, 
repenting. It, it just, it went on and on and on. What do you think happened to that church? It split wide open in revival. People started being saved. Church started growing. Relationships started healing. Uh, all the gunk got out. All the gunk. And you know what a lot of our churches need? If we just formed the middle aisle and you'd come up and start repenting. Don't talk about revival. You've got to talk about repentance. All we want, God, give us more people. We don't need more people. We need to be a better people. We need to be right with God. Are you right with your brother? Are you right with your wife? Or are you sawing the house in two? When's the last time you asked your wife to forgive you or she asked you or your children? Oh, it goes on and on and on. But we do this in the church. I, I don't like this. Well, I, mm, mm, Mm -hmm. uh, so you're part of the problem now. You're not a part of the solution because you've never, because I hear Daniel, I'm praying, Lord, for Israel. We as a nation of sin. Daniel, you didn't, you're one of the most righteous men that ever lived in the Bible. Ezekiel said you're one of the three most righteous men God's ever worked with. And you're praying in Daniel 9, forgive us, Lord, we've sinned. We've gone after other gods. We've done the, Daniel, you didn't do it. He said, I identify myself with the corporate entity called Israel. You know what some of you do? If you don't like Valley, you just find another church. You won't lose any sleep repenting and seeking God's face. Because we're in a church choose. If I don't like it, I don't like the music I'm going to. Because there's so many of us, we're not married to God's church. We're married to our pleasure, our little buzz zones. If I don't like sermon, I'll get another one. You, you know what? You need to repent and fall in love with this church. Would you stand with it even if it was in hard times? You'd probably drop your membership at Corinth. Paul didn't tell them drop their membership. He said, deal with the problem. Deal with the problem. You're not going to have a church without problems because people like you and I attend. And we get miffed and we get cross and we get critical and we get the, you know, we just need to get all the gunk out. Repent. Drop all the grievances and start fresh. I was, uh, I studied at church, Peninsula Bible Church, when I was doing my doctorate. Ray Stebbins Church, it was a big church on elders and all like that. So I went over there and I go to elders meetings and I met with Ron Ritchie and, and different ones. And Ron tells me the story that they had a guy in their uh, home Bible study and uh, he messed up bad, started seeing another woman, lost his marriage, embittered his kids. It, it was a mess. Uh, finally left the church or was put out because he moved in with the gal. So they had to put him out of the church. But after some time, after some time, and after these men had wrote letters to him and different things trying to get him to repent and to get right, he'd had enough sin, he'd had enough pain 
pain is a friend to you. If you're miserable, it might be God's trying to get you to come home. When you're in sin, you don't need pain-free living. You need to be miserable. The Spirit grieves in us until we repent. He makes us sorrowful. That's what 2 Corinthians says in verse, chapter 7. Anyway, this man, finally, he contacted one of the men and said, I've had enough. I, I've been wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm going to move out. Uh, I know I'm wrong. I've blown everything I worked for. He did. He moved out. He got a hold of the small group leader and said, I wonder if I can come back to the small group. Would you have me back? And the guy said, well, I gave him a date. So a couple of weeks out, says, come on this night, okay? We'll reintroduce you to the group. And on that night, he came back broken. Now it's a single, broken-hearted, divorced man whose kids hated him. They introduced him to the group, but in the meantime, all these men had gotten together and went out and bought him a ring and went out and bought him a brand-new sport coat. So as they reintroduced him to the group, they said, we would like to uh, give you this gift from all of us men and welcome you back to the table. Put the ring on him, put the coat on him and said, Welcome back now that you decided to leave the far country. Welcome back. Let me ask you, would you ever help us throw a party for a forgiven sinner? If somebody in this church messed up royally and they wanted to repent and come back, would you come to the party? Well, according to Luke 15, the only thing, the only time in the Bible God ever throws a party is when someone in sin comes home and he throws a party. Why don't you join him? You know what's scary about that parable? The elder son never would go to the party because he was the Pharisee. I can't forgive. I won't forgive. How dare you do this to the family? Dad's in there having a dance with that boy. This is my son who was dead and is alive. And I say to you today, we will always be challenged to forgive. And we must always remind ourselves, this is some of your problem. You don't hardly ever think you've been forgiven because you've been so good. You poor thing. You poor self-righteous blind person. If you only knew how much God signed up to forgive you when he decided to save you. He's forgiving, forgiving, forgiving. So get off of our high horse about other sinners that mess up as much as us and let us offer them the gift of forgiveness if they're willing to return, willing to do it God's way. Father, we thank you that we found in you a forgiving Father. And you paid for all my sins at the cross so you'd be free to forgive. And you don't violate anything about you to forgive. I pray if there's someone here in a bitterness, resentful, they, they keep replaying offenses, hurts, 
They're kind of like the Hatfields and the McCoys. They're never going to bury it. They're never going to let it go. Would you enable them by your strength, by the power of the Spirit, to let it go? To know that vengeance is yours, not ours. That we leave it to you. We leave it to the cross. We can forgive because we've been forgiven. We can forgive because we want to be like Jesus. Deliver us from our self-righteousness. Deliver us from thinking we've not needed forgiveness. We have all needed it and daily need it. Give us humility while we seek to be right, while we seek to do the truth. Give us that humility that comes from the forgiven, seeking God and willing to forgive. Help us to do this life's challenging assignment to be a forgiver as much as God. Oh, help us, Lord. Our hearts are small. We find it difficult. When we've been hurt and injured, we don't want to naturally forgive. But you, Jesus, you teach us. You show us how. You're the model. You're the model. Not a hit man not a soldier, not a Gentile with a so sword, but you. Though reviled, you reviled not again, but kept entrusting your soul to, to the Father. Help us to do that. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.